the divine souls. So far in this series, on the significance of Radha Krishna Bhakti in Kali Yuga, you've learned that God and Anand are one and the same. And every soul desires only that and nothing else. We all eternally desire perfect, everlasting, divine happiness, and that is only God. And the reason for that is because we are Ansh of God. We are a part of Him, and it's the nature of every Ansh to desire His Anshi. So this is why Ved says, every soul must know God. We also learn that the only chance to know God is when we're born as a human being. So, for as long as this life lasts, however that long, however long that is, which we don't know because there's no guarantee, we only have that much time in order to find God. And then once this life ends, we don't know where we will be born because we're not guaranteed a human birth in our next life. So we have to know God in this life. <clears throat> however, as we learned in the last speech, Knowing God is not so easy. In fact, the Vedas say that knowing God is impossible. And there's nothing more foolish than thinking one can know God with his own intellect. Veda also gave us some reasons. That, first of all, God is beyond our Indriya Man Buddhi, our senses and our mind. God is totally beyond. However far our mind can reach, it cannot reach God. Why is that? The first reason was, Go go char jaha lagi man jai So sab maya jane bhai The gati of your mind the extent that your mind can reach up to or understand would only be within the field of maya because the mind itself is made of maya. And the problem with that is that God is divine, which means he's beyond maya. So this is the first reason why we can't know God with our material mind because God is divine. Number two, God is the prerak of our Indriya Man Buddhi. Our Indriya Man Buddhi are Prairya. So how could the Prairya know its Prerak? Reason number three, God is Prakashak and our Indriya Man Buddhi are Prakashya. So how could the Prakashya challenge the Prakashak that I can know you? Same thing with the next reason, number four. He is dharak of our indriyaman buddhi. And our indriyaman buddhi are dharyaman. He is upholding our very existence. So we cannot reach him. Reason number five. He is the knower, so no one can know him. Reason number six. He is sarvagya and we are alpagya. So if we could know him, it would mean that God were under our intellect. It would mean that God were a limited mayic thing, not a divine unlimited thing. 
And the final reason I gave you is that God is the abode of simultaneously existing contradictions, opposites. Like he's smaller than the smallest, and simultaneously he's bigger than the biggest. He moves, but he doesn't move. He is both here and there, meaning he's within us, he's omnipresent, he's also in his divine abode, he's everywhere all at once. He is said to have no senses, but he grasps all the objects of the senses. He is said to have no feet, no hands, no eyes, no ears, yet he walks, he grasps, he talks, he sees, he hears. It's summed up nicely in one shloka said by Brahma in the Bhagavatam. Karmanyanihasya bhavo bhavasya te Durga shrayatva Durga shrayo thari bhayat palayanam Kalatmano yat pramadayuta shraya Swatman rate Brahma says, even dhir, even a highly intelligent person, khidyati, his intellect just utterly fails to understand you, O Bhagwan. And he gives a few examples. He says, you have no desire, yet you perform actions. You learned right at the beginning of this speech on day one that prayojana manuddhishya mandopi napravartate no one can perform any action without some self-interest. Yet God is without desire. He is atmaram purnakam. So he has no reason to perform any actions. Yet he's seen performing all the actions. He takes avatar, comes on this earth, he creates this whole universe. While he's here, he does all kinds of amazing things. For someone with no desires, it seems to be a contradiction. He says, you are unborn, but you are seen to be the son of Nanda Baba and Vasudev. You are Kalatma, meaning you're the lord of the god of death. Yamraj trembles before you. Yet you ran away from a little Tucharakchas Jarasand when he attacked Mathura. You ran and kept running. You just turned your back and kept running, you and Balram. And you ran all the way until you reached the ocean in what's now Gujarat. And you built yourself a whole new kingdom out there we call Dwarika. So how can you be the Lord of the God of Death and still be cowardly. It doesn't make sense. You have no desire, you're completely self-content, yet you're seen to be meeting the gopis and doing ras. So all of these things boggle the mind. If someone considers it and tries to analyze it from their own intellect, they utterly fail. So for all of these reasons, the Ved told us we cannot know God. Tulsi Das Ji says, 
जाने बिनु न होई परतीति बिनु परतीति होई नहीं प्रीति he says, if you don't know God, how will you have faith in Him? And if you don't have faith in Him, how will you develop love for Him? So then how will you attain Him? Knowing comes first. If you were to know God, you would have nothing else left to do. Having faith and loving Him and attaining Him, all of that would happen instantly. I'll explain it with an example. One time there was this uh, Sejji and he had a servant. The Sejji was out for the day and when he came back he saw that uh, there was this rock just lying there next to where he normally sits and relaxes when he comes back. So he asked his servant, where did this rock come from? He said, uh, oh, Today, while you were out, this Babaji came to the door and he was begging for some food. So when I gave him the food, he gave me this in return and he said, it's a parasman. So I said, why are you giving me such a valuable thing, a parasman, just for a little bit of food? He said, it's of no use to me. Uh, I have no use for any riches. I just spend my day uh, thinking of God and I go house to house when I need some food. People give me a little bit of food. You take the paras money. Give it to your master. So I took it and now it's it's here. The master, the, that Satji, he thought, what an idiotic thing. He believed this Babaji. No way. Paid. He was disgusted. He just grabbed that rock and he tossed it into the kitchen. And as it bounced into the kitchen, it knocked into one of the steel bartan, one of the steel cooking containers. And it turned into gold. Because that's what Parasmani does. It can turn steel to gold. So that Sefji said, Huh? He jumped up, started touching all the pots and pans. <laughs> they were all turning to gold. He was delirious with happiness. He was hugging that paras money like it was the, obviously the most valuable thing in the world. So what changed from being disgusted with that ugly rock, the paras money doesn't look like anything special on the outside, to probably being willing to die to protect that. He was so in love with it instantly. How did it happen? Knowledge. He understood, oh, this is Parasmani, can turn Ferrum to gold. As soon as he knew that and understood it and accepted it, he had love for it. He didn't have to do Kirtan of that fact. This is a Parasmani, this is a Parasmani, no. He knew it, he accepted it, and he instantly had love for it. So if we could know God, if we could know, oh, Krishna is mine, he is God, he's Anand, he's Satchit Anand in unlimited amount, he's been sitting in my heart since eternity, giving life to my soul, he's even with me now, he's always giving me the consequences of my past karma so that I can keep progressing. If we understood, if we knew and accepted all of this, we would instantly have love for Him. So this fact that we can't know Him, 
It's a big problem. Knowing God and loving God are one and the same. That's why there's there's a problem with just having a, a theoretical knowledge of the scriptures where someone thinks, oh, I, I read Vedas. I get calls sometimes from people or people ask me in person and they say, they ask about studying the scriptures. I say, well, first of all, I'm not a scholar of any scripture. I learned like a child at the feet of, of a qualified master, Jagadguru Sri Kripaluji Maharaj, but I'm not a scholar. It's his greatness that he has the knowledge and he's able to pass it on to a simple-minded person in such a way that they can grasp it. So when someone asks me about, oh, should I, how should I study scripture? Should I study Sanskrit? Should I learn Vedas? Who should I go to to study Gita? I don't know what to say <laughs> because I don't believe someone can get further ahead simply by studying the scriptures. What, are we, what does further ahead mean? More love for God. You won't get love for God just by having a theoretical knowledge of the scriptures. You have to really feel and accept your relationship to Krishna. Then you get the actual result of that knowledge, which is love for him. Veda says, Asti tevopalabdhabhyas tatvabhavena chobhayo Asti tevopalabdhasya tatvabhava prasidati the moment someone actually believes God exists, God appears in front of them. It's the moment of God realization for them. See, Tulsidasji said, Jane binu nahui parititi. Parititi, faith, vishwas. So, do you accept that Krishna exists? Do you believe he would come to you? First, you need to know him, know about his virtues, know about his greatness, his kindness. Then you'll develop faith in him, and once you have faith in him, then you'll love him and he'll come to you. Do we have such faith? No, we don't. Even though on the very first day I proved to you that every soul is eternally astic. Even someone who claims not to love God or not even to accept God's existence, someone we call a Gnostic, even that person is a perfect Gnostic and can never stop being an Gnostic even for a fraction of a second because everyone is seeking happiness, can think of nothing but finding that happiness and the true happiness is only God. So seeking happiness, desiring happiness, thinking about finding happiness, that's the same as desiring God. So those who are devoted to finding their own happiness are devoted to God. So we're all Astic. But from another point of view, we're all Gnostic, totally Gnostic. Because if we weren't, God would have appeared to us long ago. 
I'll give you some practical examples of where our faith is lacking, or if you can listen to my examples and you can think of your own self and see if it applies. There's a tradition in India when someone dies and you're carrying the body towards the Shmashan Ghat, where the body is going to be cremated. People say, Ram Nam Satya Hai, Satya Bole Gatya Hai. In other words, only God, God's name, is truth. Everything else is impermanent. This world is impermanent. My relationships are impermanent. Worldly happiness is impermanent, temporary. Only God is permanent. That's what it means. So people feel that. They actually do feel that in their heart when they're going to the Shmashan God and when they're there. And then when they come back, they tend to forget. But let's say on the way to the Shmashan Ghat, they're carrying that person that they used to know, who's now died, the soul has departed the body. Let's say they're carrying him and all of a sudden he sits up. Maybe it was uh, a young boy and the father and the whole family, they're carrying that boy to the Shmashan Ghat. But they thought he was dead, he was pronounced dead, but he wasn't fully dead. So as they're carrying him, he wakes up and he sits up. What's the first thing the father will say? Now don't say Ram Nam Satya anymore. Why not? As if saying God's name is bad luck. See, that shows our own, do we have Astikata or Nastikta? What would you do? If you were carrying your own son, you thought he was dead and he woke up, would you let people keep saying Ram Nam Satya or do you think it's bad luck? What if, uh, you know, they may not do this very much anymore, but in old days they used to also carry a bride in a palaki, right? From her, from her house to the new husband's house, to the in-law's house. So what if when they picked up the bride, and started walking, some stranger came along and started saying, Ram, Nam, Satya. What would people do? Everyone would attack him. What, are you crazy? Or let's say um, there's, a, there's a child sitting in a cradle, and you pick the child up, and you start rocking him, and you say, Ram, Nam, Satya. What do you think the parents are going to do? They'll be running after you with their shoes. So this shows that uh, what is our understanding, what is our faith when we have fear of God's name in certain circumstances. So we don't match up to this If we had real faith in God's existence, he would come to us. There's no delay from his side. The delay is from our side. For instance, when we offer bhog to Bhagwan. Many of us offer bhog, either our own plate before we eat, or if you've cooked something and you actually bring it to the mandir, to your own little mandir, and you offer it. How do we offer it? Do we actually wait for God to come and eat, believing that he'll come and eat? You may close your eyes when you're offering the food. So do you, after opening your eyes before you start to eat, do you look and see, 
Did Krishna come? Did he eat anything? Did he have a little taste of something? Or do you just dig in? <laughs> so someone's probably thinking, oh, come on, as if Krishna is going to come and eat. Formality. We just do it because it's a, it's a polite thing to do. We show God some respect. We don't actually expect him to come and eat. So how could he come and eat then? In your heart, you're already denying with 100% certainty that Krishna will never come and eat this food. So that's what he's listening to. He's not listening to the song you're singing, asking him to come and eat, or the mantra you recite. He's listening to your heart, which is saying there's no way you're coming to eat this. So then <laughs> why would he, how could he come and eat? When we offer items in puja, it's amazing that there's special, like let's say cloth. Cloth you want to offer in puja. You know there's special cloth you buy for offering when you offer uh, vastra to Bhagwan, which is of lower quality than what you would buy in the store to wear or to give your family to wear. Yeah, it's, it's called the, you know, what the stuff you would use for puja you would never you would never offer that to a real person right to wear it's too rough it's too unrefined and if you had real nice quality sari or real nice quality material you'd say no no that's not for puja <laughs> so this is how we think because we believe it more like a formality not like god is god could really come and accept what i'm offering to him if we're walking on the street, let's say you're walking outside of Apna Bazaar, and there's a big crowd, lots of people coming and going, and you see a hundred dollar bill lying on the ground. So when there's so many people around, and you know you're going to be seen, you're more likely to reach down and say, oh, did someone drop this hundred dollar bill? But if it's late at night, no one's around, or <clears throat> you see, who knows, depends on the person. Let's say you see a person walking in front of you, the $100 bill slips out of their pocket. Do you grab it and run up to them and say, oh, this fell out of your pocket? You might. You might not. Because you might, oh, nobody's looking. He doesn't know it even fell out of his pocket. Let me slip it in my pocket. So why would we do something like that? Only because we forget he's watching. Krishna is watching, but we're not afraid of him. We're afraid of any human being that might be watching us. <laughs> Imagine, the only thing we're going to get from a human being is embarrassment, right? Excuse me, I saw you put that $100 bill in your pocket. So embarrassing, I'm mortified. <laughs> But from God, you're going to get the karmic consequence. You did that thing, now you have to get the consequence. We're not afraid of that. It means we don't have faith. We don't really have strong faith that God is watching us, He's with us, and He's going to give us the consequences of our actions. Sometimes we believe it, sometimes we feel it, and sometimes we forget. But a true Aastic 
is austic all the time, 24 hours a day, not for 23 hours a day or one hour a day. It would be like someone saying, I'm Satyavadi for 23 hours a day, but for one hour I tell as many lies as I want. So could he call himself Satyavadi? No. Someone says, I'm Brahmachari 23 and a half hours a day, but for 30 minutes I do whatever I want. So is he a real Brahmachari? No, of course not. <clears throat> so if we only believe in God part of the time, it means we're not truly Astic. So in order to become Astic, we need to know God. But Ved is saying, no one can know God. It's impossible. So it means it's impossible to become Astic and we'll have to remain Gnostic forever. Yet, Ved also says, no, 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 you can know God, many have known God, you also can know God. Vedaha metam purukham mahanta maditya varnam tamasah parastat. Shvetashvatropanishad says, you can know God, I have known God. The saint is saying. So, how will we know God? Ved says, Nāyamātmā pravachane na labhyo na medhaya na bahuna shrutena You cannot know God through any kind of intellectual meditation. Not through listening to pravachan about God not by having any limit of greatness of intellect, any height of IQ, not by debating about God, listening about God, then how? Very simple. Yame tena labhyas atma vivrinute tanugvam swam kathopanishad. When God graces you, then you can know Him. So simple. You can't know Him on your own. You don't have the power of intellect to know God on your own. But if He graces you, jab bhagwan kripa karte hain, tab koi bhi unko jaan sakta hai. Deva prasadacha shvetashvatropanishad. If you get God's prashad, His grace, His kripa, then you can know Him. <clears throat> At the end of the Gita, Shri Krishna asks Arjun, Hey Arjun, is your agyan gone now? Do you have proper understanding? Did you get the right knowledge? Arjun said, Nashto moha smritir labdhatvat prasadan mayachuta. Oh, yes, Achut, Shri Krishna. My moha is gone, my confusion and my ignorance is gone. I've received correct knowledge from you. How? Through this 18 chapter lecture of the Gita you just gave me? No. He said, Tvat 
Prasadat. Through your prasad, through your kripa, I have got correct knowledge. At other places in the Gita, Shri Krishna also says, Mat prasada davapnoti shashvatam padamabhyayam Only with my kripa, with my prasad, you can attain the divine status. Tat prasadat param shantim sthanam prapsyasi shashvatam Again he says, only with God's prasad, with his grace, can you attain divine peace, divine bliss. <clears throat> In the Bhagavatam, the same thing is said. Brahma says, Athapite devapadam bujadvaya prasad lesha nugrihita evahi janati tattvam bhagavan mahimno nachanya eko pichiram vichinvan Brahma had become so confused. Why? Because he tried to exercise the power of his intellect to analyze and understand Shri Krishna. Shri Krishna was in the form of a young boy, just five, six years old. And he was out grazing the cows with the calves with his friends. And they were having lunch. They were enjoying lunch as boys would when they were out with total freedom the whole day with no parents around. How would they be behaving? Having lots of fun, lots of laughs. Even during lunch, everyone's sitting around Krishna, crowding around him. Everyone's sharing their food. Oh, this tastes good, Krishna. You try this. Oh, here, have some of this. Krishna sees something that looks good in one of his friend's mouths and he grabs it and eats it for himself. <laughs> Brahma had decided at that time, well, I'm going to come down to earth and see what is Bhagwan up to. I've heard that Bhagwan has taken avatar. I want to see what he's doing. So he came down and he saw this whole leela happening, this uh, lunchtime leela of Sri Krishna and the Walbats. So he became so confused, he thought, God is acting like such a little child? He's taking food out of his friend's mouth and eating it? I thought God only accepted offerings that were made with great formality and great yagyas, with proper recitation of mantras and proper purity of everything that's offered, and here he's snatching something out of his friend's mouth and eating that jutha? He became so confused that, oh, maybe this can't be God. No, no, no. Maybe I should test him and see. So to test him, as the boys were sitting there having their lunch, the calves had wandered off. So Brahma, using his maya, he put all those calves in a trance and he transported them to a cave and kept them there. So when the Gualbals noticed that, uh, oh, the calves have wandered off, we should go see. Krishna said, no, 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 you, you guys stay, keep enjoying your lunch. I'll go and see. I'll find them and bring them back. 
So he went, he walked all over and he couldn't find them. So after some time he came back. But when he got back, his friends weren't there either. Because while he was out, Brahma had put all of them in a trance and put them in the same cave. So at that point, Krishna thought, okay, something funny is going on here. He thought for a second and he knew, it's Brahma. He's playing some game with me, trying to test me. So I'll show him what his power really is next to Bhagwan's power. So after putting uh, all the cows and the gualbals in that cave, Brahma thought, uh, let me also go back to my abode and have some lunch and then I'll come back and check on, see what is Krishna up to, how confused is he by all of this. But Krishna went back to Brahma's abode first. He got there before Brahma. And he took the form of Brahma when he entered his abode. Everybody thought it was Brahma. So he went right there and sat on Brahma's throne. And he said to the guards, there's another Brahma on his way here. He's an imposter. So when he comes, I want you to arrest him. So when Brahma entered his own abode, first of all, he saw another Brahma sitting on his throne and that confused him. And then the guards came towards him to grab him. So he fled from there and came back down onto earth. When he came back down onto earth, you know, he was, okay, I'm safe. Now uh, let me see what Krishna is up to. Let's see if he's confused or perturbed by not being able to find his friends and the calves. So when he looked, he saw Krishna's eating lunch with his friends. Krishna had taken the form. He himself had multiplied himself and taken the form of each individual Gualbal and had everything exact, precise, meaning what they were wearing, how their hair was, their mannerisms, their voice, their style of talking, walking, everything exactly the same. And Brahma saw, saw them all sitting and eating and laughing and playing. Then he thought, let me see, the cows are there too? They're grazing? So he rushed to the cave and he thought, no, 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 the calves are here, the gualbals are here. He came back. He said, no, they're here. They're eating lunch. They're grazing. Unko chakkar aagya. He thought he was going to faint. So then in that moment he realized, oh, I made a big mistake. I tried to test Krishna, his intelligence, his power. Then in that moment he surrendered to Krishna and Krishna graced him. And then he saw that all the forms were actually forms of Krishna himself. So you see... Brahma could not know Krishna, he could not measure Krishna, he could not even understand a simple childhood leela of Krishna on his own, with his own intellect. And by trying to know Krishna through his own intellect, he got himself into trouble. It was only with Krishna's grace that he was able to know him. So this is why Tulsidasji says, so he janai jai dehu janai. He can only be known by the one to whom he makes himself known. No one else can know him. Ram kripa binu sunu khagrai. 
जानी न जाई राम प्रभुताई Without his kripa, no one can know his greatness. So we understand that the only way to know God is through his grace. This is a relief. Because initially, Ved was telling us, no, you can't know God, no one can know God, even Brahma can't know God. Now we know, oh good, if we get his kripa, then we can know him. So at this point, if I were to leave it at this point, many people would think, oh good then, it's just up to God, I'll wait for Him to grace me. It means I don't have to do anything, it's all on Him. It's His responsibility when He decides to grace me, He'll make Himself known to me, and until then, what can I do? It's out of my hands. After all, the truth is, even a leaf can't flutter without the will of God. Nothing can happen without the grace of God. So, what can I do? We put all the responsibility on God and we become complacent or inactive. This is a very dangerous philosophy. It can be taken and is taken to extremes by some people. Meaning, some people even take it to this point of saying, whatever I do, whatever I think, it must be only God's will, because He's controlling everything. It only happens with the will of God, with the grace of God. Vahi hota hai jo manzure khuda hota hai. होई है सोई जो राम रुचि राखा को करी तर्क बढ़ावे साखा If someone doesn't know much Shastra Ved, they may still know this simple verse from the Ramayana and they can use that to justify any of their behavior. Someone who knows Vedas may say, Tameva bhanta manubhati sarvam tasya bhasa sarvamidam vibhati. In other words, whatever is happening, it's all happening because God is making it happen. Brahmayan sarvabhutani yantra rudhani mayaya gita. People quote these verses and say it's. There's nothing I can do. I'm not responsible for anything. God is just making us all go around like we're hooked up on some machine and whatever God, or like a puppet. Whatever God is making us do, we're doing. Whatever He's making us think, we're thinking. This is the most dangerous philosophy. Why? Because then we have no responsibility to try to improve ourselves, let alone attaining God. Leave that aside for now. Even just to be a good person, we stop making any effort for that. We say, if God wants me to be good, He'll make me good. If I do something bad, it's because He made me do it. I have no responsibility. If that were the case, which it's not, thankfully. But if it were the case, there would be so many logical inconsistencies. <clears throat> For one, God is said to be Sarvagya, 
all-knowing. He has perfect knowledge. Then the question would be if if we were to if we were trying to say that God is the performer of all of our actions, He's the He's the one, He's the force behind our every thought. Then the question comes, why do we have ignorant thoughts? Why do we do ignorant things, wrong things? God could never do anything wrong. He's perfect, kind, good, knowledgeable. It's like if uh, someone's intoxicated and they're driving their car, then it's going to be swerving all over the road. The more intoxicated they are, the more reckless their driving will be. The one in the passenger seat, if he's sober and he says, Hey, stop the car, you're driving like a maniac, get out. You sit here, I'm driving. Then he takes over and he drives. Now the car is going to go properly. In other words, if God were in control of this guardie, then when would we ever make a mistake? It would be impossible. So just the fact that we do wrong things and we make mistakes and we're ignorant of many things, that proves that God is not in control here. That's reason number one. <clears throat> reason number two, if God were in control of all of our thoughts and actions, He were the performer of all of our karma, then why should we have to undergo the consequences of all of our karma? We perform good actions and we enjoy the good results in future lifetimes. We perform bad actions and we suffer. All the ways that we suffer in this world, it's only because of the bad actions we've done in the past. Why should we suffer the consequences of our actions if God is the one performing them? We should say, Krishna, you made me do that wrong action. Why should I suffer for it? You have a choice. Either you suffer the consequence or you forgive yourself. But I am not suffering the consequence. <laughs> Reason number three. If God were the performer of all of our karma, then why would he bother to even produce the Vedas? What's Ved full of? Vidhi and Nished. Meaning do's and don'ts for all of his children, us. It's like a whole rule book for how to live your life. These are all the things you should be doing. These are all the things I prohibit you from doing. Why would he go to that extent of producing one lakh mantra of Ved here in this world to guide us? He could have just written one line. Whatever I want you to do, I'll make you do it. That's it. No need for philosophy of Vedas. No need for any saints to come in the world and try to teach us and guide us and pull us in the right direction. No need for other species for us to go into as a result of our karma. No need for swarg as an incentive to perform good actions. No need for narak as a deterrent for performing bad actions. No need for any of that if God were the one in charge of performing our actions. <clears throat> so he's not. <laughs> we are. 
then why do we say, why do the scriptures say things like Brahmayan Sarvabhutani Yantra Rudhani Mayaya or Ura Prerak Raghuvansh Vibhushana He's the Prerak. He's the one inspiring our thoughts and actions. So is he not controlling it? No. It's a very subtle difference we have to understand. This is a big confusion in the world and it's a very damaging confusion because if we think God is controlling our actions, we're bound to try to justify our wrong actions by saying, oh well, God must have made me do it. So understand where we draw the line. Is God responsible for anybody's karma? The answer is both yes and no. So understand how yes and how no, you'll understand the whole thing. Yes, because if God was not giving us life, we couldn't perform any karma. He is within the heart of every soul, giving life to that soul, giving life to their indriya, man, buddhi. So without that, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't think. We couldn't act. We couldn't move our hands, we couldn't see, we couldn't hear. Yan manasa na manute ye na hurmano matam tadeva brahmatvam vidhi ye tam ye nam yadidamupasate ityadi kenopanishad says Your mind could not function unless God was giving it the power to function. Your eyes could not see unless God gave them the power to see. Your ears could not hear unless God gave them the power to hear. Your voice could not speak unless God gave you the power to speak. You wouldn't even be alive unless God were giving you life. But having given you that life, having given the power to your senses and mind to function, he then doesn't interfere any further. He steps back and lets us perform our actions and he takes note. That's it. He's watching and noting and then giving us the consequences, but he's not interfering in what we do or what we think. He provides lots of guidance, the Vedas, the saints, but he doesn't physically interfere. He's not planting thoughts in our mind. He's not causing us to do things. He's leaving that up to us. <clears throat> There's a sutra in the Brahma Sutra that addresses this, saying that without God's power, without His grace, you couldn't perform any action. However, what actions you choose to perform are not up to God. That's up to you. It's like a, uh, a seed when you put water on that seed, then it germinates, right? But then, what was the type of seed, what's going to grow out of that seed? Is it going to produce thorns, or is it going to produce flowers and fruit? Let's say it produced thorns. So then, uh, would you blame the water and say, oh, water 
Why did you bring me this thorny plant? Why did you make this thorny plant germinate? Well, the water is just there. Similarly, God gives the ability for our mind to function, but he doesn't tell us what to think. Water's flowing in a river. Anyone can go and make use of that. If they use it for something good, that's up to them. If they use it for something bad, that's also up to them. The river is not to be congratulated if someone uses the water to cook a tasty dinner. Mm -hmm. And the river is not to be uh, held accountable if someone uses the same water to drown another person or another human being. It's not the water's fault. The water is there. A police officer is issued a gun. If he misuses that gun, his superiors aren't thrown in jail. What he does with that gun once he's issued that firearm is up to him. He's supposed to use it for something good. He's given all the training and guidance and told what to do with the gun. Then if he shoots himself in the foot with it, it's not his superior's fault. It's his own fault. So God gives us the instruction manual, the scriptures. He gives us help with all the saints who tell us, train us how we're supposed to act and behave in the world. And with all of that, if we still shoot ourselves in the foot by doing bad actions, then we have to get the consequences and we can't blame God for that. So we understand now that God is gracing us so that we have life and our senses and mind can function, but he's not controlling what we think or do. But we're still dependent on his grace to know him. So how do we receive his grace? That's the question. Obviously, it's not a case of just sitting back and waiting. If it was, God would have graced us long ago. Why would he wait? He's kind. He's probably looking for any chance to grace any soul. Why would he, why would he be holding back? If it were all up to him, we all would have been God-realized long ago. If God could just think and instantly make everybody God realize, don't you think he would? Then there'd be no need for this sansar. We'd all go to the divine world. So God doesn't, can't, because we also have free will. We have our own mind, our own free will. So there's something we have to do in order to receive God's grace. And what that is, we'll consider tomorrow when we continue this series. Bhuli Vrindavan Bihari Lal Ki Jai